EP. This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and I'm Amanda Yuli. I'm filling in on Living Writers today for uh, the wonderful T. Hetzel, who could not be here today. Uh, we just heard Tom Waits singing um, a song called Tom Trobert's Blues, but otherwise known as Waltzing Matilda. And we played that song for a very special reason. Our guest um, lives inside a Waltzing Matilda, if, if you will. Um, I'm so pleased to have Amy Hamrell here with me today. Uh, welcome, Amy. Thanks so much for having me, Amanda. It's good to see you here in the WCBN studio in Ann Arbor. Um, what I'm going to do is have Amy, for those of, who aren't familiar with um, Amy's work, she published this year in 2016, Detroit Hustle. Amy, if you want to give just a short synopsis of the book to start us off, that would be a great sure. way to begin. Sure, would love to. So Detroit Hustle is a memoir, and it's sort of the story of my husband and I, um, and we call it a love story. It's a love story between a man and a wife, uh, a couple in a city, and a couple in their house. So we moved to Detroit in 2013 and bought one of those crazy old homes you hear about with uh -huh. no plumbing, no heating, no electrical. And the book is the story of us renovating that, but it's also the story of, of newlyweds and issues of race and class and gentrification and sort of the issues that major American cities are facing today. And sort of as more people look at going other places they perceive as being cheaper, you know, from coastal cities, how do you go to a new place and make it home? So it's really a story, a love story and a story of home. It's so many things. I loved um, in reading it the different uh, layers that you added, as you said, um, all the kind of historical and factual um, background about Detroit um, and about the economy, and then your own story sort of woven in. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah, it was, you know, when I first pitched the book, I actually, so it was nonfiction, so I sold the book with a book proposal, not having written the book. So I, you know, had started a blog to keep all of my friends and family across the country sort of up to date with, uh, you know, my moved to Detroit in this house. Uh, but also as I was doing the blog, I was discovering there were so many issues that we were coming up and across that I assumed other people had to have questions about. Like, how do you get homeowner's insurance on an abandoned property? The answer is you don't. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you need to get <laughs> vacant property insurance, and it's really hard to come by in Detroit. So there's all these hurdles you don't expect. And I thought I should be blogging about this to help other people be able to answer these same questions. And as I went through that, realized, well, maybe there's a book in this. And so I actually pitched more of just a straight nonfiction reported book about where Detroit is going and the future of, of the city. And when I sold it to Running Press, my editor said, 
Well, that's really interesting. Charlie LaDuff's book has just come out. Mark Benelli's book has just come out about Detroit, which are both, you know, sort of either looking at the past or looking at the future, but from more of a journalist's eye. What we want to know is who moves to the murder capital of America to make a home? Like, this seems mm-hmm. crazy. We want your story to help people be able to understand this city and see it through your eyes. So a lot of the reporting and research I'd done about the history and things like that Still, I felt still needed to be in there, but all of a sudden my entire plan was upended and I I wound up having to write about myself, which as a journalist isn't my first comfort zone. Of course. Yeah. So at what point, when I was reading it, I kept wondering at what point you decided to not just experience the whole takeover of uh, this house and and renovation and... um, at what point you decided to actually write about it too. So all along, did you did you have that in mind? Were you taking notes? So I decided in, um, pretty early on. So as soon uh-huh. as we'd bought the house, I'd been blogging for, you know, two or three months and realized there was such interest and people were saying, hey, are you going to do a book about this? And I am a writer. And I was like, well, perhaps I should do that. <laughs> and, you know, my dad had always said, like, you'll write a book when you have a book in you. And I felt like, well, maybe, maybe I do. And the book, they said, was initially supposed to be a journalist perspective. And then when it became the memoir. It was sort of the memoir of the naive newcomer and all along taking notes and figuring out who I was and how I was evolving as a person. And, and my story um, was was kind of interesting. I, I read a lot of books on how to write memoir because I'd never written a book before. And my mother always said, there's nothing you can't do without a trip to the library. So, so true. You know, exactly. So <laughs> I, I got myself to that. the library and got, and got a book on how to write a memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, when, when my publisher bought the book, they asked me if I could uh, write the book in 90 days. Oh. And I was like, sure, because I've never written a book before. So why not? And so I went to the library and I got my book on how to write a memoir. But sort of really thinking about the idea that it's, yes, it's my story, um, but also it's a story that's got to add up into something more. And what what are you learning? And what it's not just an opportunity to air dirty laundry or just be funny. It needs to have epiphanies and or at least it means something. And I don't know if I accomplished that with my book, but it was a thing that Mm -hmm. I kept putting in the back of my head is like, what does this mean? Who am I? Why did I come here? You know, I'm a I I say in the book, you know, I'm a a poor kid from rural Colorado. I grew up in a trailer, wasn't even, you know, wealthy enough to live in a double wide. And so how does that kid wind up in, in Detroit rehabbing a house? And yet, there is a lot of connective tissue between rural Colorado and, and Detroit that I discovered and on my path to write this book. I noticed that, and I really enjoyed those um, connections that you made. I, I mean, I enjoyed every part of um, the the reporting mixed with um, the kind of uh, memories and feelings and um, the experience that you had and that you put forth on the page um, in the book. I think, you know, it reminds me, the span of memoirs, uh, for me, there's sort of two ends of it. There's the really fact-based, like really reported ones. And then there are the ones where memory and feeling are kind of the gold standard, right? Where it doesn't matter what really happened, but it was sort of like, absolutely. if you you felt it, that is what happened. so I, I wonder if you could speak to kind of where you think your book falls on that spectrum. Not that books can't be mm. both, but sort of where are they or where is the book? And um, what do you think about other people? I think about the other characters that you so beautifully drew in the book, your husband and your friend um, <laughs> and, and your family members. Would they see things the same way you did? So I would say that I probably am closer to the reported 
side of the spectrum just because that's my natural place, but sort of had to draw into more of just the memory memory side. When I started the book, I, I did call my mother and father and talk to them about it and said, like, look, this is based in fact, but the facts are how I've interpret and that is what becomes me and who I am. And so even if my interpretation of what happened and the memories I hold don't exactly mesh with yours, this is what has shaped me is this perception of, of what happened. So before it came out, I did give um, you know, my parents copies of the book to be able to review. And I said, tell me what the, you know, did I get something factually wrong? Like it was a 1973 or was it a 68 Ford high boy? Was I nine or was I eight? You know, was it 82 or 93? Those kinds of things that are empirical, you know, please let me know if I got any, anything wrong, but sort of my interpretation of them is this is my story. And I was very lucky that my parents both were really loving and understanding about that. Um, Especially considering that part of the book involves, you know, my parents divorcing. Uh, so while I was here living in Ann Arbor during the Knight Wallace, my Knight Wallace oh. Fellowship year, I got to go to University of Michigan in 2012, my parents divorced and my brother and I had to sell off the family business. And it was, it was a very traumatic time. And that is in the book. And so it was really beautiful that my parents gave me the leeway that they did to not only talk about myself, but about this traumatic event in their lives through my perspective. Um, with my husband, you know, he knew all along what was going on. I think there was some initial challenges because I told him that we had to be really open and upfront about the money. Uh, what does it take? What financially, what does it take to rehab one of these crazy houses in Detroit? Because I, I get frustrated with memoirs that, you know, I mean, I loved Eat, Pray, Love and Elizabeth Gilbert. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm sorry, where did the money come from to spend a year <laughs> traveling around? Because I need that money tree wherever it is. <laughs> There's a premise that you have to. So I, onto, I yeah. wanted my book to be really frank and direct so that other people could see what we had done. And he's very private about money. I've been a personal finance, you know, editor, I, you know, at mm -hmm. Fortune and CNN Money in different places. So I'm more comfortable talking about money than he is. And I had to get him, you know, OK with that. But I also made a conscious choice in the writing to that my husband is really the hero of the book. So if there's a villain or a bad guy, I tried to make it me. Mm -hmm. And if there's sort of a, a hero or a good guy or sort of your, your narrative guide through, it's him. Mm -hmm. um, so overall, I think everybody has, has been pleased. Um, some of my family members, I did not expect this, um, talking about, you know, talking about Detroit, and I'm not from Detroit originally, but talking about sort of the issues of, of white flight and the history of the city, but sort of saying, like, look, I don't know how to judge what happened in that city. All I can do is make peace with what happened to my own family who white flighted out of Denver. And I have members of my family who believe that that was me calling my grandparents racists. And so I'm dealing with some fallout in my own family about that. And I, I thought I was trying to be very careful and measured and saying, like, look, I understand that everybody made choices that were right for their family at the time with the information. And, you know, let's just assume best of intentions in their heart. But even good individual choices don't necessarily add up to good public policy. Right. So. Right. But so I, I think it was definitely sort of reported, but also in the feeling era, mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly I didn't remember, you know, exact dialogue, of you course. know, uh, when I was little. But there are certain things, there are snippets that I do remember, like my father, you know, scenes between me and my father, scenes that I remember, you know, very vividly. Mm -hmm. So that was that was definitely unexpected. I did not think that the book was going to be about my father and I as much as it turned out to be. 
It really was. I think that he is also a character that really emerges uh, with a leading role, um, as well as Carl, your husband. Yeah, Yeah, the, uh, Um, the father just, again, really didn't expect that. When I was first writing some sample chapters for the publisher, they asked me to write about childhood. And so he, dad, became this real character because as I had to really explore for them this idea of how does a young girl from rural Colorado wind up choosing to make a home in Detroit, figuring out who I was and who I, how I'd been shaped by, you know, this man who you read in the book sort of likes to joke, he's not my biological father. Um, you know, he was without work for a lot of my childhood. And so when he adopted me, um, part of that was he, you know, decided to forgive the back child support my biological father owed. And my dad has always told me like, you know, you were a good bargain kid. And so I've always known exactly how much I cost, which was like 7,000 and change. But dad always said it was a good bargain. But thinking about who that man was, who was all about sort of strength and grit and just getting it done Mm -hmm. um, and hard, but loving and sort of how he shaped me into the human that that finds a home in Detroit and amongst a beautiful community there. Yeah. I was thinking about that when I was reading the parts about your childhood. Um, It struck me that having that there really speaks to the notion of home um, in the book, which is a real symbol, I think, throughout the book, is this sense of you and your husband um, building a home in a community. I would love for you to speak to what a home means to you and and whether that's I'm curious about whether that's evolved for you from your childhood to when you were living in New York and elsewhere and sure today. so I mean I think that home for me has always been incredibly important um, and though I re- realize now that I actually haven't lived anywhere for more than five years at a time. So I tend to blow my life up every five years. And I'm approaching five years in Detroit. What's going to happen to you, Amy? I'm like, (laughs) you know, like, hold on, not going to do it this time. But home has always been important to me. So even when I first went off to college, um, I had my own apartment and it was really important to me. I find a place, I stay, I make a nest, I make a home. But I've also been trying to figure out where I belong and and what is the right community for me because I grew up in a again in that small town, and with a dad who's very much about community and very much about sort of small business shop in your local community like you support the people around you just very much that ethos which is so Detroit it's right? so Detroit it, it's such a great uh, you know it's one of the yeah. most, you know wonderful things about the about that city, and so but I also knew that I wanted to be a professional. I wanted to be a journalist. And I did not grow up in a place where I saw women having opportunity. I saw either, you know, you if you had babies, that's it held you back. There was no I didn't have successful women in my life that showed me how to be like be a mom and a professional woman. So I was just like, I'm not having kids. I just want to, you know, I want to get out of poverty. And when we were redoing the house in Detroit, there were there were funny things I talked to my contractors about, about like what recalled poverty for me. I'm like, there will be no popcorn, you know, texture on the ceilings. <laughs> because I just remember homes from my childhood, uh-huh. the grease and the cigarette smoke just hanging in that popcorn. Um, just th- those things that like, you know, I sit in this dressing room I have now on the second floor in the sunroom of the house. And it's, I think, how did I get here? How did I ever become the person who deserved this kind of home when, like, little girls like me didn't get that in Fruit of Colorado? Like, the best we could hope for is, like, you know, a job at the city market and a couple of kids and maybe a husband who didn't beat us. I mean, that was sort wow. of the era I grew up in. Not to say everybody in Fruit is like that. I, I don't mean to, not. you know, to denigrate anybody, but that was sort of the 
the perceptions I've had. So I mo- I've moved around a lot, moved to New York City. I've lived in Jackson, Mississippi, Michigan, New York again, Denver. And every time, like, I put roots down and I put them down deep and then I wrench them out for the next sort of professional opportunity. And so Detroit was the first time... I made a choice based on a place rather than on a job. And so I bought, you know, like I teach at Michigan State. I've always advised, you know, mentees at other publications, like go where the job is, you know, especially early on. Pick, go be interesting and good work will follow. You know, don't don't go where you just where you want to live. Go where good work will happen. And now I'm in a place where I've. I've chosen home, and it's not a place that's a major media, ind- you know, industry. Like it's not New York City, where there's always gonna it was always gonna be media work. So that was scary for me. But for some reason, this was that one of those cities that it took a little bit to grow on, grow for me. My husband loved it from the get go. It, it took a minute for me. But the community there is really what I realize home is. Like, I love the physical space of our home. Um, it's a, you know, 1914 Georgian revival. It's in a, nas- in a neighborhood that's on the National Register of Historic Places. You know, I wish that it had a front porch. It doesn't have that. That was one of my requirements, and I lost out on that. It is absolutely my husband and I. I feel comfortable in that. I've always wanted a home that I could entertain in and people would feel comfortable going going over. But I realize you can find that physical space anywhere. And so really, for me, home is defined by knowing my neighbors and, you know, it taking an hour to walk five blocks because you run into everybody, seeing the same people in the coffee shop in the morning, having your neighborhood bar, a restaurant, and sort of that, the ebb and flow of your life being about that community. You wave, you say hello, And I know that that probably sounds really stifling to a lot of people, but I realize I've formed my life no matter where I've lived around these very, you know, small social interactions of, you know, of a community that I fit into. Even in New York, most people think of it as a city of 8 million. I lived in a neighborhood that was less than 10,000 people, looked very much like Detroit, was very isolated, and you pretty much had to self-select to live there. And so it was this very tight-knit, gritty, like, get-it-done kind of community. And that's apparently what I always go that's for. That's what you're into. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's a great thing to go for. You talked about... Um looking for a place to belong. And um, you also talked um, a moment ago about your husband knowing very early on that Detroit was that place for him and that it took you a little while. I wonder if there if there was a moment or if there was a confluence of circumstances or things that helped you understand that Detroit was where you'd belong. It's a big decision that you made. It was a big decision. So I, so the Joe, you know, the, the, my best friend and I had come to Detroit about a decade before Carl and I moved to Detroit on vacation. I was living in Denver. She was in New York. Detroit was midway. I wanted to see the Diego Rivera murals. She wanted to go to John King book. So, so we met up for a weekend. We, you know, went across the, the river to Windsor because I'd never been to Canada. You and have on, to do that. You have to do that. I, you know, had to have poutine. Uh-huh. And on the way back, we got stopped at border, at the border crossing because they refused to believe that we were visiting Detroit like, I didn't know you weren't supposed to visit Detroit, but like, they were like, no, nobody is a tourist in this city. Are you sure? Like, we promise. So, but from that moment, I'd sort of had this idea of Detroit. And it became the city that was my plan B, should I ever need a plan B. There was no reason or rationale for that. But like, I'd been there, I, I liked it, but I liked this very small. Like, we couldn't even find a place to eat downtown Detroit at mm-hmm. that point. This, was a, this would have been like 2000, 2001, maybe. Um, 
But somehow it sort of got that slow roll into my heart that like maybe this was going to be the place. So when my husband and I were living in New York and thinking about other cheaper places like all New Yorkers do, like what if would we ever leave? Where would we go? There was sort of always Detroit on the horizon for both of us, even though he'd never been there. And it was sort of a false idea in my head. And so when we had the opportunity to come to Ann Arbor, it was like, oh, that's Detroit adjacent. That's really interesting. Um, We went to Detroit for the first time on a really hot August day looking for a piano for Carl. And I was like, oh, God, what, you know, like this was this was not the Detroit I had had in my head. Like it was, I think I say in the book that Red Hook could look really quaint despite having similar demographics because it's you know 10 square blocks you know uh you know where you can see you know manhattan across the island you can get to it that's very you know very different disinvestment doesn't look as quaint across 139 square miles when you're facing sort of like the poverty and the ruin head on and 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 unprepared for it i I did not realize I was going to be unprepared for it. So my first reaction then was like, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. This is not a plan B. My husband, however, kept coming to Detroit while I was at the fellowship. So when I'd having to be doing things with Knight Wallace fellows, he'd come into Detroit and he always found some random bar. Carl will open any door to anywhere and just like (laughs) sit down and be at home. And I love that about him because I can only do that when I have a reporter's notepad with me. Like if I am not at work. I'm not very comfortable talking to anybody, but you give me a reporter's pad and I'm out doing my job, I'll go anywhere. But so he would come back with all these stories of the community and stories of people he'd met and saying, like, I just love the city. Come, You've got to come back. You've got to come back. And so I did. And he sort of started showing that to me a little bit. And I was sort of warming up to it. And the, the fellowship was approaching, into the fellowship was approaching. And I thought what we wanted to do was travel because we decided not to go back to New York, too expensive, piano dogs, just sort Mm -hmm. of once you've left Brooklyn and pride yourself out, like now's the time to go try and live another life. Because if you go back, it's going to be almost impossible to pry yourself back out again. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I took the foreign service exam and I thought, okay, my husband loves to travel. I've always wanted to see the world. I'll get, you know, I'll go into the foreign service. I'll get a cool stationing. Like it's going to be awesome and came back and like passed the foreign service exam on the first try, which I was surprised well by. Like, yay me, <laughs> I, yay me. Um, and my husband didn't want to do it, and I was shocked. He he said, "I want to, I want to put down roots somewhere. This is really important to me, and I want to do it in Detroit." I was like, "Oh, okay," and so. We started thinking about that, and I got a, ended up with a job offer in Detroit at Crane's Detroit Business, and I ended up with a job offer in Oakland, California. And I'm trying to think between the two, like, which one do I go to? One, I was going to be the editor-in-chief of my own paper. The other, I was going to be the entrepreneurship editor. The positions paid the same, and Carl's like, oh, my God, you know, th- that's nothing in Oakland, but we can live on that in Detroit and, you know, do this. He, you know, he's constantly like, Detroit, Detroit, Detroit. <laughs> and I'm going, Oakland, good tacos, Oakland, sunshine. like Sunshine. Yay, yes. sunshine. California. <laughs> um, and we were there visiting when I was on my job interview. And, and I was standing outside a bar. And it was dark. And I was smoking a cigarette, which I no longer smoke. My mother is very <laughs> pleased. <laughs> but as I'm smoking, I'm like, 
watching these guys kind of roll up on me. And I don't feel threatened. They're not being dangerous. But, like, they're coming quickly and close, and I'm the only person on the street. And I don't. it's in the book. I don't remember exactly what the, the phrase was. But they're like, don't you know it's not safe here? You know, don't you know this is Oakland? Don't you know this is dangerous? You know, for me to be a woman standing out here by myself. And I just looked up and I was like, I am from Detroit. I got this. <laughs> And I was like, if I'm going to call on the street cred of the city I don't even live in yet, like that's apparently my heart telling that's me it. where it wants to be. So even though my mind was not there yet, my heart was like, we are we are Detroit. So yeah. um, I don't know when you get to call yourself a Detroiter. Like, you know, I don't know when you earn your official Detroit badge, but I, I you know, I like to think different that I got some little ribbon answers. or something yeah. that day. <laughs> I think you did. I think you did. Um, speaking of, of your husband, we missed um, the chance earlier to talk about why Waltzing Matilda was an important song to start our show with. Do you want to give that story? Sure. So Waltzing Matilda by Tom Waits um, is a favorite song of my husband's. He loves Tom Waits. But when we bought this house, the day we closed on it, and again, we 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 don't know where we're going to go and like celebrate. We feel like we should do some celebration. We've just spent $35,000 on essentially three good walls. Like the south wall's <laughs> collapsing. The roof is going to need to be replaced. Oh, and the foundation's fine. So we got three walls and a foundation. Uh, no windows. And we decide we don't know where to go in Detroit. So we just, we go and buy a bottle of Woodford Reserve at the like spinning window liquor store around the corner from the house and go sit on the front porch with these weird little hot pink shot glasses because we had, of course, no cups. We had to buy cups from the the liquor Mm -hmm. store. And we're toasting and he says, I think we should call her Matilda. I was like, okay, Matilda. And he says, after the the Tom Waits song, Waltzing Matilda, sort of that song to him is about this you know, grand old dame who'd seen better days um, and somebody to love her again. And he felt like that this house was the same thing. I don't fully understand it. I will admit this is in his head, <laughs> but I, I supported it. And so we, we call mm-hmm. her Matilda and, and the house is called Matilda throughout the book. Um, and it's you know really special to him. Well, the house definitely emerges as a character itself or herself. She is a character. She's a very, very expensive grand old lady. She, she puts you through a few things <laughs> yep. in the book. Um, if you're just tuning in, this is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and I'm Amanda Yuli filling in for T. Hetzel on The Living Writers Show. We have Amy Hamrell with us today. She's author of Detroit Hustle. I think I'm going to give a little uh, more formal, uh, for those just tuning in, a little f- more formal look at your bio, if you don't oh. mind me giving some background in the middle of our conversation. Um, Amy Hamrell is an adjunct professor at Michigan State University and a freelance journalist who writes about entrepreneurship and economic development. She covered the city of Detroit for Crane's Detroit Business during Detroit's historic bankruptcy trial. She was a Knight Wallace Fellow at the University of Michigan, here where we are, Go in Blue. studio, and the personal finance editor at CNN Money and a senior editor at Fortune Small Business. She lives in Detroit, as you know if you've read the book, with her husband and 16 paws worth of critter. That's two dogs and two cats? Two dogs, two cats. Though we are we are down to just two dogs and one cat now. So we have fewer you paws. You have fewer paws. I have, have to do paws. the math, but yeah. Okay. So there's sorry a, to hear that. There's a very famous a cat that becomes very famous in the book, Jack mm-hmm. Cat, and he mm-hmm. passed away recently. I'm sorry there. to know that. Yeah. But we still have, we have Maddie, who is my pit bull that I found in Denver mm-hmm. in the snow New Year's Day, gosh, like 15 years ago. So oh. she's my elder bull. And now we have Bow Dog, Bobien, who is my Detroit street pit bull that wandered into the backyard mm-hmm. six months ago and took a little while to convince him to come to me, but now he's a member of the family and such a good boy. 
He, at least he really wants to be a good boy. We're working on that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hopefully you've got some time. Um, I, I'd love to ask about, um, you, you mentioned, jur- well, journalism is, is part mm-hmm. of your bio here. You mentioned um, the difficulty in reporting on yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's essentially what you were doing in writing this memoir. Can you speak to that a little bit? Reporting on myself. So I think that one of the things about the time frame of this book is that it's a pretty condensed time frame and trying to write it was in a condensed time frame but i was trying to write this book about moving to detroit living there rehabbing a house while i was rehabbing a house and about detroit and its bankruptcy while it was in bankruptcy mm-hmm. so part of my struggle was that the the childhood and the early stuff was much easier to write about even though it's harder to report but i'd had all this lifetime to sort of be thinking about it so just sitting down to write it and and sort of make sense of it in some ways was a little came came out of me a little easier it was the the more contemporary material that was really hard uh, even though I could get the facts of it right, it was the emotions of it that were much harder for me to report on and pull out of myself. There were times, um, I think we may listen to it, like listening to Taylor Swift's Shake It Off, trying to shut the haters up in my own head mm-hmm. um, as I was trying to write and figure out my place in Detroit and what did I feel and what did I think and what were even my rights to think or feel about it as sort of a newcomer into the city who got a book deal when there are 700,000 people living in that city who never left it. You know, there are people who've never left it. And here I am, like, you know, middle class white woman coming to the city and I'm the one who gets to tell the story of Detroit. And that was very difficult for a lot of people, difficult for me to make sense of. And so uh, even though like I could report about the facts of bankruptcy and I can tell you everything you ever didn't want to know about the challenges of appraisals and how (laughs) banks, you know, pull appraisals and all of these sort of very technical things. I think if I were writing the book today, it might still be maybe be richer because I would have had more time to reflect on the end. Um, initially when I had 90 days to write the book, I, I, I did the first eight, I did, I did eight chapters. I won't say the first eight chapters, but like while you're in the process of this renovation, while yeah. I'm in the process of this <laughs> renovation and part. working full time. Yeah. yeah. But I got to a point where I was like, I can't write anymore because I don't know anymore. Don't like know I can't end. tell you how it ends because <laughs> It hasn't ended yet. We're not out of bankruptcy. We haven't gotten, you know, a sense of the appraisal and and the value of the house yet. We're not done with construction. But really, you know, part of the book is about gentrification because I'm sitting here in Detroit renovating this house. And on the one hand, like it had been empty for a decade. The neighbors are thrilled that we've, you know, taken this eyesore off of that they've been having to maintain for years Mm -hmm. and like reactivated it and, you know, filled out that last, you know, blank spot on the block. Like they're thrilled, but at the same time, you know, there is sort of this sense of cultural gentrification in Detroit and it are everybody like my husband and I coming to town sort of displacing the culture and changing what Detroit is or wants or is going to be in favor of our aesthetics or our preferences. Like there, there are great concerns about that. And so the book looks at that, but it's also looking at like my family back home in rural Colorado and the gentrification going on there, though we call that the boutiquing of the American West, mm-hmm. where the, the small towns are now these great spots for mountain biking and, and sort of being outdoorsy and, and things like that. And they don't, people don't want my family around. They don't want rumbling trucks and loud pipes and work boots and mud and the evidence of work. So while I'm coming into one can be looked at as gentrifier, my family is looking at being gentrified out. So there's, 
it just a lot of that struggle. And while I was trying to write the book and report on that, I mean, report on the facts and the figures of what is gentrification, but also trying to report on my feelings about it, I, I remember calling my mentor and I was convinced, like, if I could just find the right pen and the right like desk and spot in the house to write from like it would all get better I was like where you know where do you write like do you write in your sunroom or you know do you write in the kitchen and like do you have an air on chair or is it like an old what kind of chair do you have what you are know, the trappings what are the I trappings need? like what can you just tell me the exact nature of what I need in my writing space so that I can do and she was like oh my god shut up she was like you need to calm down and you need to sit down and like write through to the heart of it do not stop writing until you're crying she was like, I don't care if it takes you 20,000 words. I don't have to do 20,000 good words, but you know the drill. Writing is the process. You don't get to the good part until you've written through it. Shut up. It doesn't matter what pen you have or like Just what write. chair. Just write. And it was the best advice I could get because I sat down that day and just wrote through it. And I must have written like 20,000 words on gentrification that nobody wants to read. Not even yeah. me. <laughs> but it helped me get to this idea of, that I was struggling mm -hmm. with between like, emotionally watching what's happening in Detroit and who I am, who I was, who I am. How do you be the person who technically personifies the American dream? Like I came from nothing. My parents are proud of me. I became the middle class, upper middle class perceptions of me, you know, in a place that's really poor, um, looking at me as a certain kind of person because they only see that they don't see where I've come from. And so ma I won't lie, like massive guilt about that as I watch my family continue to struggle as I continue to succeed. And, and so the book, the book sort of has to tackle that for me. And I don't know how you report on that. <laughs> well, with Taylor Swift is a part so of just that. trying to shake it off and like shake off the haters in my own head, but also like, yeah. Being pretty active in social media and being a reporter in town, I was very astutely aware at the time of the conversations about mm -hmm. race and class and gentrification and my place in it. And, you know, I had a couple of times, you know, some pretty, pretty rough interactions. I, you know, I had somebody sort of comment to me on a story. I don't even remember what the story was that I'd written, but said, you know, get out, you're raping Detroit. And I took that very seriously, like, okay, what... What is my role? Because if Detroit can figure out some of these challenges, how do you rebuild this middle class in the city that originally built it? And there's so much distrust around public institutions, around wealth, because so many people have left and abandoned it. And you don't, you know, there's just such massive trust issues. How do you, like, trust new people to come in and think that they want to be a part of your community instead of like I've always seen my entire life in Colorado is people wanting to come in and make it over in their image and be like well I really love your mountains but if it could just look like LA but with mountains that'd be awesome and I'm fifth generation native Colorado so I get the like you need to back off my place <laughs> like, this is my very tribal place. and so I know that like yeah. A good, thoughtful human is not tribal. Like we're more embraceive, mm -hmm. we're sort of expansive. But I think humans are very protective around their home and their community and that space that they find, you know, to be theirs. Especially when there are scarce resources. You know, you you yeah. you hold them you hold them tight when they're scarce. Sure. And you've claimed a new place as as your own and as yes. part of it, so. um, which is great. I think in the spirit of haters, internal and external, we should hear Taylor Swift. <laughs> for, for a light moment. I really um, like watching my husband dance to this because he, like I said, he's more of a Tom Waits or like uh -huh. a, a death metal guy oftentimes. Okay. And then you see him dancing to Taylor Swift's Shake It Off and you I just find it so charming. 
that he has all those sides. It's a powerful song. We can agree. We can all agree (laughs) on that. Uh, We'll hear from Taylor Swift and then Amy Hammerill and I will be back uh, to chat a little bit more about writing and books and her book, Detroit Hustle. was Taylor Swift, and we are here in the WCBN-FM Ann Arbor studio with Amy Hamrell, author of Detroit Hustle. And we're um, shaking it off. And we are shaking <laughs> off all the haters. 
all of them. Um, Amy, your book is about the renovation that you and your husband did of a beautiful 1914 home in Detroit on the east side. Um, I'd love to talk about like the transformation um, of the house is oh, a central sure. part of, yes. of your book. But I think what struck me, I think my favorite part of the book is when um, you're sort of unpacking clothes, I think it is, from your, your life before oh. the renovation. Mm-hmm. And you smell this perfume that you used to wear and you realize you are a different person. So the transformation yeah. is not just of the house. It was not just of the house. And the house had a, a major transformation, but I think so, so did I. Um, the process of writing it just helped me deal with things, I, with issues and challenges in my life I didn't even know I had, like to, being able to write about my father and my relationship with my father or what is home um, allowed me to do that. But the just evolution process to suddenly, it's a gift that I had to suddenly have like put my entire life in boxes on in ice and so it was in storage for like three years and then pull them out and realize like how Detroit had already shaped me as a human and my thinking was hugely powerful. And I still wear that perfume. I, that's still part of me. I've worn it. It's Isatis by Givenchy. I've worn it since, oh my goodness, high school. But, like, I have all these beautiful shoes that are just so fundamentally a part of an old life. And it's everything from the clothes to, you know, who I am, I think, as a more even, you know, I always thought of myself as an engaged member of my community and now even more so and sort of attentive and thoughtful about issues of of race in particular. So, you know, talking with my mother and and friends and family back home who honestly live in very sort of white communities and would not even know to think about some of the issues that my neighbors are addressing or that they face every day or issues of systemic racism and, and why sort of there has been a lack of ability to, you know, raise capital and, 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 and wealth in the African-American community because they couldn't, ha- you know, buy houses in the same way white families could. And just sort of that knowledge and making me sort of a better person. And I, I would like to say becoming a better ally or at least every day working to be a better ally. So I think that's been a huge, a huge shift. Um, but yeah, like it, it was, a, it was when I realized that and was writing that section, I was like, oh, wow, there is a big difference between the change. two. Yeah. I do not wear high heels anymore. Well, I love that you have the very tangible evidence of the old shoes and the things yeah. that were things yeah. um, in your life before, but really it was about the ideas and about your Absolutely. Your now evolution. I have four pairs of snow boots <laughs> as opposed to multiple <laughs> well pairs of high heels. <laughs> Important. Um, so you alluded to this before, but I always have to ask writers about how you write, when you write, what, what, what does it look like? How, how do you know you're setting yourself up for getting um, some words on the page? I don't. I'm not. I'm terrible. <laughs> I'm fighting through that myself right now, like trying to figure out what the next projects are. And I've got a million ideas circulating in my head from novels to another book proposal and just am not doing any writing like I do my work um you know sometimes I am good at writing you know doing freelance so I write for the New York Times sometimes and even that the the less I write the harder it becomes to write so I've got this great story I need to write for the New York Times and I'm procrastinating it like crazy instead of just sitting down and writing it because I've gotten out of the habit of just sitting down and writing and so that's sort of my new year resolution is to do that again um 
I use the artist way sometimes. Um, I forget the author of that, but it's sort of a, a 12 week boot camp project to get your creative juices flowing again. She, you know, she, she's got like, you have to take your art self on an artist date every week and like sit up, get up every morning and do your artist pages, you know, just write. So make that time and space. But I've actually never been good about finding the time and space to write unless somebody is enforcing a deadline on me. So I'm trying to learn to enforce a deadline on myself. I think that's the hardest thing. I think that that's what so many people say is that deadline thing, that external. And I so respect those writers I read who are like, you know, they get they, they say it's part of their routine and their schedule and they get up every morning and they like take their constitutional and then they come back to their desk with their cup of coffee and their water or whatever and they write for four hours and then they get up. Like, I want that routine and have not never done it and it's a constant battle with myself because i'm just like why are you so lazy why can't you do this like you should be better and then i just beat myself up and then i don't write and i'm like okay now i'm not writing because i'm beating myself up this is ridiculous oh the the games we play in our minds yeah absolutely very difficult things well how did you write this book you were um were you writing it in the house for the most part or the house was not so i was writing it in the house some of it how did I write it? Um, I wrote it at coffee shops. I wrote it at the DIA, a lot, the mm-hmm. Detroit Institute of Arts and the Kresge Court. I wrote a lot of it at the Detroit Public Library main branch up on the third floor mm-hmm. um, because I couldn't get cell service and things like that. So I could really just go up there and pull out of the world, which was really important. Um, I had to teach myself to... Um, I put one of those internet blockers on my computer. And so when I turned off the internet, like it was huge because I would find myself going down rabbit holes, like trying to find some fact I needed for the book. And instead of then writing, I would find myself three hours later, like some, you know, unrelated rabbit hole. So I learned I had to, (laughs) I had to turn off the internet and just put what journalists call TK, which means to come of like, get this fact later, just keep going with the narrative. The narrative is what's important. Um, I, when I, I did quit my job at Cranes so that I could finish the book because I had a very tight deadline um, to finish it after Detroit emerged from bankruptcy. Um, and we got me this, we went to this little junk shop and got this old 1950s table and chair and put it in what would become my dressing room, but was just like covered in, in, uh, paper on the floors and was just a rough space, but that became my workspace. But I got to look out over the Detroit river because our house is just one block off the river. So I could sit there and write and watch the barges go by, you know, could see Belle Isle. So that, that became my special writing space. Um, but yeah, the, if I couldn't have done it without the DIA and the Detroit Public Library. Beautiful to think yeah. about those Detroit places having yeah. their own role in the book. Very much. Yeah. And um, do you have any kind of closing words? We're almost at time here, but I'd love to hear any closing words about um, how you see Detroit now. I mean, Detroit is changing all the time, as as are we, of mm-hmm. course. But uh, you published the book six or eight months ago now. Yeah. And um, Detroit's different today than it was when you probably finished the book and when it was published. Detroit's very different today than when we started. And even when I started on the book, I mean, so much is coming into downtown. Um, I mean, one of the big big signs for me was the Tomboy Supermarket, which was the little market around the corner from Carl and I when we first moved there that I used to have to like walk through really handsy men just to get in and like get what was probably spoiled meat. Like it was not a nice scenario. Now sells $400 handbags. And that sort of, I think that's what people are struggling with is like the excitement over the new and welcoming new and sort of rejuvenation and, you know, the, the skyscrapers being filled and enthusiasm, but also going from like zero to like 
you know, luxury overnight, um, feeling like there's so much great things happening downtown, but we don't go downtown anymore, especially on the weekends, because there's so many people visiting from the suburbs and other places, which so that's more of a traditional, you know, city downtown is like the people who live there don't get to partake of it because it's more of an entertainment destination zone. But at the same time, we're, what's really exciting to us is watching the investment come into the neighborhood. So like, there is so much happening in the West Village, which is the neighborhood we live in, with new shops opening up. But even more so up on 7 and Livernoy, where we're watching the old Avenue of Fashion get a bunch of in- investment, the North End. You know, what's happening with urban farming is huge, you know, sort of. Uh, the North End Christian Coalition, that's like the North End CDC that's been there for like 15 years, has got a massive urban farm operation that's just remarkable. I think they just got a $500,000 grant to really be able to expand it. Like, So while there's a lot happening in downtown, what I think is really special is when we see happening out in the neighborhoods. And that's usually more grassroots people just making it happen for themselves, which fundamentally Detroit is a DIY town. Um, people make their own destinies, and I don't think that's ever going to change. I think that is part of what makes Detroit special, and I hope that in its effort to sort of refill the abandoned spaces and deal with blight and all of those things that we don't take away, sort of this very powerful right to self-determination, community spirit, DIY, um, you know, passionate Mm -hmm. community. That's what the people make Detroit special. And that's a commonality between people who are following in your footsteps uh, in moving into the city and people who've been there a yeah. long, long time doing great things. Yeah. Well, Amy, it has been such a pleasure to have you here in the studio with us today on Thank Living Writers. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, Amy Hammerell is the author of Detroit Hustle. And um, you can find her, you can give your website. Yes, yeah, so you can find me at amyheimerell.com. Um, you can also find on Facebook, if you search for Detroit Hustle, you can find the book's Facebook page and find me through that as well. And there's lots of pictures there. Oh, that's true. You have the blog. So I have. With, so I've uh... got the blog um, that's not particularly active on my website. Um, I do post a lot of pictures on Instagram and on Facebook. So you can find me through both both of those places. Um, I'm always on social media. Heimerl Ad. So it's my last name and Amy Dawn is, you know, Dawn is my middle name. So H A I M E R L A D. We'll see you there. See me there. Sounds good. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. No. What is it? WCBN. Oh, WCBN! 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 Ann Arbor! That was me, Sin, and Jill for WCBN. Oh, yeah, wait, say WCBN FM. And we got to go to sound check. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Okay. Merry Christmas, everyone, and Happy New Year. Thanks so much for stopping by. Guys. Oh, we loved it. And remember this holiday season, if you're going to drink, get a designated driver. It's slippery out there. <laughs> ¶¶
Log Jam Lurch from King Usnevich and Usnevich Tones. You are listening to WCBN FM, Ann Arbor, 88.3. If you're any further to the left, you'd be watching television. Cry on my shoulder. Oh, baby, please be kind. Welcome to episode four of Wolverine Hockey Wednesdays. If you're here with us live, you are listening to 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. If not, thank you for tuning in wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, William Gregory, today joined by a couple of repeat panelists, 21-year-old sophomore Luke Beely, <laughs> chronic Chicagoan Kobe Siegel, and Taylor Swift fan Kendall Spencer. Today, we're going to complete an all-time Michigan hockey draft. Anyone who has skated for the Wolverines for any length of time is eligible. You may select a player on the merit of their NHL or Michigan career. We will be selecting a starting lineup, three forwards, two defensemen, and a goalie. If we have time, we'll take some other bench players. Um, by virtue of Luke's last name starting with B, he'll pick first, with the order descending alphabetically by last name in a snake format. But before we get to the draft, we've got two Michigan men's hockey games to cover. I will say the women's hockey team won 3-1 to one against Grand Valley State last Friday, October 13th, while the men's team was in Amherst, Massachusetts, winning 7-2, to against UMass and then dropping the second game 3-6, to six, although that score was a little bit misleading. There were two empty net goals towards the end um, that widened the gap from the original 3-4 to four score. Any thoughts on uh, Michigan's goaltending? Some scoring, Garrett Schiffsky and D- uh, Dylan Duke scored two goals each in the first game, but any thoughts on the men's team so far? 2-2 two and two overall. Um, uh, no, West is... On the board for goalies. I'll, I will say that. He's on the board. What do you mean? <laughs> the draft board. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, doesn't sound like the weekend went great for the guys, but um, <laughs> I now don't down know, to man. Number seven in the poll. They're down to seven, you said? And the only, you know, St. Cloud's one and three. They're ranked 20, uh, but they're the only two-loss team besides them. Yeah, that's not great. Not a great start for the guys, but 